Everything F1. Driven by fans, for the fans. And it's lights out and away we go! is still on provisional pole. This time for Stefan and Hamilton have crashed out. It's McLaren and Ricardo that win the Italian Grand Prix. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. The Red Bulls end up dominating in Spain after a spot of engine trouble for Charles in the Scuderia. Are Mercedes now back in contention after a pretty impressive turn-up for the books in Barcelona? We will discuss all of this and more in our Spanish Grand Prix review. My name is James Tiller. This is the Everything F1 podcast. And alongside me today from the Everything F1 team, we do have Coops. Hi, Coops. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this one, uh, reviewing the, uh, the the Spanish Grand Prix. And we've got some really good guests to chat to, so I'm a bit excited about that. We've also got on from the Everything Everyone team, Emma. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm always good. Always good. <laughs> um, now, the two special guests that we do have alongside us today, uh, we've got uh, quite a regular contributor to the podcast, actually, now, uh, Ed Straw. Hi, Ed. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. I'm amazed I keep getting invited back, but happy to turn up. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. No, you, you always give great insight, so we're always happy to have you on board. Someone that we haven't had before uh, is ex-Formula One driver and current Formula E driver for Rocket Venturi Racing is Lucas Di Grassi. Hi, Lucas. How are you? Hi, James. Uh, thanks for hosting me. It's a pleasure uh, being talking to you. No, well, it's a pleasure to have you on board, uh, and I'm going to ask you loads of questions uh, once we've got the Spanish Grand Prix uh, review out of the way. But I'm really looking forward to kind of delving into your career and your past. Um, but we are Everything F1. You can find us on all our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We also are on TikTok now. Uh, and we've got a website, which is www.everythingf1.com. We would also love it if you would hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast streaming service and get all of our podcasts in your earlobes as soon as they drop. And of course, you could always give us a five star review if you like too. Right. Before we go into the review of the race, we've got a little uh, game that we do like to play. It's called Penalty Points. Now, in this, I'm going to ask three questions. They're just from observations from the weekend. If you know what the answer is, panel, shout out your name. Whoever gets shouts out the name first gets to answer the questions. And I put points away uh, until the end of the season and I give a prize to whoever gets the most points over the whole duration of the season. I think Coops is currently in the lead at the moment. I can't remember what points he's on, but I know he's in the lead. But anyway, well, let's see how, how you fare with these questions. Um, question number one. Name the two rookie drivers that made an appearance in FP1. Oh, Coops. Coops. Uh, Nick De Vries and Yuri Bet. Absolutely. Uh, how did they do, uh, Ed? How, what was the consensus about the uh, the performance of Nick De Vries and uh, Bibbs? Yeah, they did fine, which is about all you can do in an FP1. It's a test session, effectively. So they both did good, sensible jobs. Sergio Perez, I think, felt a little bit frustrated that he'd missed the first session, but I think it made too much difference for Alex Albon, given the pace of the Williams. But yeah, both 
as you'd expect for drivers of that caliber did, did good jobs good so it'd be interesting to see them maybe in a car next year or do you think, do you think any of them got a shot after that that kind of performance that they did I don't think the FP1 outing will change a great deal. Nick de Vries has kind of got a shot. I don't think he's in quite as strong a position as some think, but it's possible. Yuri Vets all depends on Red Bull. There's a lot of moving parts in that Red Bull yeah. driver queue. So it's possible. And he's another driver who, you know, he's got a lot of ability. So let's see how he does in the rest of F2 this year. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, it's good to see uh, some rookies in the cars and, and we're hopefully going to see a few more of those occurrences this year because of that new rule that was brought in uh obviously at the start of this season that every team had to to put someone forward for a free practice one didn't they uh, every seat wasn't it as well um so yeah that coops good good point for coops uh for the first question the second question uh who relinquished his lead in the championship for the first time this year coops, coops again uh, emma mm-hmm. i saw emma emma you were so close coops. then just, yeah, so I was boring. just getting ready to say something and then you stole that uh, way uh, You forgot your name. <laughs> Go on, Charles, Charles Leclerc. He was indeed. Uh, and last question then. Uh, we previously had the pink Mercedes, but who has Aston Martin been accused of copying this year? Emma. Oh, go on then, Emma. You got in Red there. Red Bull. Red Bull, indeed. It's now the, the green ball, is it, or, or something? They, they, I think the, the Red Bull team, for for a bit of a joke, actually brought out the green cans of Red Bull just to uh, to take the Michael on the on the pit wall, which was quite a nice little touch from the Red Bull team. It's nice to see. Anyway, that's that's kind of whetted your appetite for the the, the review of the race. Um, let's get into it. Uh, it was pretty much a, a dominant display from Max Verstappen once Charles Leclerc had his engine failure. So, who should we talk about first? Should we talk about Max Verstappen as he was the winner, or should we talk about Charles Leclerc because he was the unlucky uh, person with a, with an engine failure? Let's let's go to to Lucas. Lucas, um, what was your thoughts uh, on Charles Leclerc's misfortune this weekend? Um, from from my understanding, the um, the reliability of these powertrains they rely a lot on the lightweight and uh, extreme design that is uh, that they do. So to to gain more power, you compromise reliability. And Ferrari seems to have improved a lot their powertrain. So I don't think it will be the last time we see some reliability problems for the Ferrari or for the, for, for, for uh, actually the, the Mercedes also, it's a bit, well, I think the Alpine has already had some penalties, mm. but the Mercedes also, uh, Lewis was talking, to, uh, I read somewhere he was talking about like saving that race to save an engine because they kind of already predicting that they will have a penalty in the future about something. Yeah. So the um, it, it is extremely hard to push those uh, old, let's say old, uh, long-term duration engine and powertrain designs to the limit yeah. and then keep the reliability on. So um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's the price you pay for performance. Uh, otherwise, I don't think Ferrari will be where they are now in terms of performance. So there is always a pros and a cons in the end. It's basically you have to multiply how much points you're going to lose versus the performance you're going to gain in a season. And uh, I am actually, uh, it would be very good to see Ferrari winning again after probably like, I don't know, 13 years maybe or 14 years mm. without winning a title. So it would be very good to see Ferrari winning again as a, as a person of view. Yeah, absolutely. And and Charles was looking really strong, obviously, earlier in the season. But like you say, uh, they're all having tr- uh, some trouble engine-wise with reliability-wise, especially that Red Bull. Uh, Red Bull had a problem with the fuel pump in Bahrain uh, yeah. with both cars as well or something like this. So 
there is all, every time they change a lot the car design because the car is completely new. Mm-hmm. Um, they have problems with weight. So everybody's pushing the weight uh, to be as little as possible. And when you push the limits, you have reliability problems. That's kind of normal. And yeah. then you kind of get used to that and you go through this technology phase. So, yeah, I guess uh, there will be not the last time we see these problems. This is. Let's hope not. it's not too much because, as I say, we want the, the battle between Charles and, and Max Verstappen to go backwards and forwards, uh, don't we, Ed? Uh, like, like we had last year with, with Max and Lewis. Um, we can't have too many failures because Max is just looking really strong. Every race that he has finished, he has finished first. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty pretty good record to hold. Yeah, when it goes well for Red Bull, it, it does go uh, very well, usually. But it's an interesting point about the engines, because Luke is absolutely right in what he says, but there's the extra factor as well in that the engines are frozen this year. There's still a few aspects of it that are open. You can make your one change. There's a homologation deadline on September the 1st for a few elements, like the MGUH, etc. Mm-hmm. Mostly it's locked. But you can't improve the performance, but you are allowed to apply to improve the reliability. So there's actually even the extra thing, yeah, you always want performance, but the reliability is the thing you can fix. So that's almost switched the risk reward because you can you can make fixes. And apparently there have been plenty of reliability requests flying <laughs> between the FIA and the engine manufacturers uh, already. It, is that is that a, a loophole that will be exploited, not necessarily just for, uh, for reliability? Well, it was used quite liberally in the previous engine freeze era in the 2.4 litre V8 era to try and ensure there was a little bit of engine parity. So it could be used in the same way. It's only meant to be for reasons of reliability, cost, safety, et cetera, or mm. uh, in unusual circumstances. So it, it may happen, but yeah, there's been a lot of reliability issues and partly as well, it is down to the uh, the corpusing that all cars have encountered to some degree. For example, Alpine, I think it was a water pump that went on Alonso's car in Saudi Arabia and that was just down to the, the, the beating it was taking from the bouncing of the car. So they mm. had to get a reliability exemption to, to tweak that for that reason. So there's all these factors that are, almost bringing, bringing unreliability back into Formula One a little bit, a little bit of unpredictability, at least if someone's running away with the race, but not nice if you're Charles Leclerc, you've got the race seemingly won, and then suddenly you've got nothing. Uh, Lucas, actually, I want to ask, how, how kind of distracting is that, that sort of porpoising? I know actually you might not have experienced uh, F1 type of porpoising, but I'm sure you've been down some really bumpy tracks and, uh, and, and experienced uh, kind of a, a bumpy situation. Is, is it very distracting, very hard to drive uh, through those sorts of situations? Um, so uh, porpoising, it is a flaw. It is a, it is a mistake on the design. It's not something that happens. It's a combination of having a, a, a ground effect car and a very locked suspension. So you cannot have smart suspension. So you cannot control the exponential gain on downforce when you get very close to the ground. Mm. So it, it is, it, it is a, it's very hard to see this type of flaws, especially in F1 uh, nowadays. I think that's uh, to, to start to say what purpose is, it's not something that happens in race cars. <laughs> happens in really badly designed race cars. Right. Um, uh, so, but because of the rules, that kind of happened. Um, but I had an experience. So, uh, so when new rules come along, or when there is like a, a lock-in in a certain rule, um, you try to avoid it. So you try to find ways of counteracting. So in LMP1, when we were racing the Audi's, uh, the Le Mans car, we started linking the front and the right, uh, the front and the rear suspension with the fluid. Formula One had that as well for many years. 
And we had that also for many years. So basically the car during the straight, it's tried to stall the diffuser by not allowing the front to go down, just the rear and the fluid goes back and forth from the front damper to the rear damper. And once Audi got it wrong and we had a test in Sebring, which is known for being very bumpy. Mm -hmm. And the car was so bumpy in the straights, the car was jumping so much that I could not press the radio button. I could not, I, I, my hands, <laughs> I, could, my, my, I could not hold my thumb in the right position to press the radio button. My, my foot got completely blue by hitting the monocoque on the straight because of the bouncing of the car. So these things can go, ex can go a lot to the extreme. It's, it's a horrible uh, feeling to be driving with. Uh, it changes the grip level of the car. Um, it changes the way the car behaves. It changes your vision. Your brain is not made um, to withstand this type of variation in G-force. Mm. So you can, you can cope with a, 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 a variation, a G-force to one side, but sudden, sudden variations of G-force, actually your brain moves inside your skull. So it, it is, like I said, a flaw. It shouldn't be like this. And this is not good for the sport. This is not good for F1. This is, should, it, has, it has to be solved at one point. Yeah, it's it certainly doesn't look very comfortable uh, at, the, at the speed at which they're they're porpoising as well. I, I mean, we've seen it's seen the frequency, it's not the speed. Yeah. So the problem is the frequency, is the G force variation. So you can have like very high porpoising, very high frequency, and be just like a vibration from a flat spot in the tire. Uh -huh. uh, the problem is that you have the the oscillation of the peak and negative G, and the frequency the that uh, and the amplitude times the frequency generates the problem. See, I, I did a bit of research into you before we, uh, we brought you on and, and it said you were a, a member of Mensa and now I understand why you were a member of Mensa. <laughs> showing, you, showing us your, your brain power there, uh, which, uh, you know, absolutely brilliant. Brilliant to hear, obviously, that, that great detailed explanation. Thank you. You made me blush a bit. So I, didn't, I, I was not expecting that. Yeah. See, I, I, we do the proper research when, when we get a guest on. Um, We'll go to Coops. We want to hear your, your Scottish tones. What did you think about the race this weekend between Max winning uh, and Charles Leclerc's uh, poor reliability issues? Uh, I think as a general kind of observation, it's it's like the advert for showing how unpredictable Formula One is. So you get mm. the start, Leclerc gets away, disappears, and you think, oh, he's built a couple of seconds. This could be good. Then, then Verstappen's in the gravel. He then can't get past Mercedes, as DRS is broken, and you're thinking, oh, we'll put a sailing off into the future. And he breaks down. <laughs> and then you've got the next storyline of the, the Red Bull and the, you know, Perez being told he's in a different strategy, which is basically them saying, like, shift it, <laughs> Verstappen's coming through. <laughs> uh, you know, and it all changes, and then you've got wee battles around the side, and then the last five laps, the two Mercedes cars are told, look, hey, watch what you're doing, this car's going to break, you know. Uh, mm. which meant that Hamilton loses a spot. Uh, it was great. You know, I, you know, I was trying to keep notes just, you know, to write up my article for the review. And then it was like, all right, so I'll just do this. And then, oh, oh wait a minute, right, delete that, right, add that, change that. So it was... Uh, it certainly kept you on your toes then. I did. It was good. It was good. It was an enjoyable Spanish Grand Prix, which is two words you do not have together 
very often. <laughs> uh, and Emma, let's listen to you. Uh, what was your what was your take on the team orders that Coops has just mentioned between uh, Max and Sergio Perez? Um, I personally think it's a bit too early. I know that a lot of other people were annoyed about it as well. But obviously, mm. you know, for the sake of the championship, you know, he did move out of the way. But I did, I did when I was watching it, feel really sorry for him. And I was in the same position as Coops as well. I was trying to make a graphic for the winner and I was changing it like every five minutes. And I was like, <laughs> it's going to be Perez. I'm so excited. And then next minute he's told to move. And then I was like, all right, okay, it's going to be Verstappen. I was changing it every five seconds when I was making it. But um yeah, it was enjoyable. Like Coop said, it's not it's not always enjoyable. Spanish Grand Prix, sometimes it is, you know, usually a bit of a Saturday race, whoever's on pole. But um, yeah, it was it was a good one to watch. And yeah, and I say Max Verstappen was the winner. Um, congratulations to him. Um, I am, I do feel sorry for Sergio. Uh he, he, I think he was I think he was expecting at this point in the season to be allowed to, to do his job. Um Lucas, do, do you think it was the right call in the end uh, for Red Bull to say, go on, let's do the switcheroo? It's a hard, hard question. Uh, and there is, I would say there is different answers to that. There is the driver point of view, there is the team point of view. Um, and uh, there is no right and wrong. I think there is what is best for, for each party, depending mm-hmm. on the call. Unfortunately, racing is a team sport. Um, like cycling, sometimes you have a guy that has to lead the, 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 the group for the, somebody to win the Tour de France. And I think on average, it's fair to say that uh, Verstappen had better performance average over the last year than Paris mm-hmm. and probably will have this year. So let's say if the championship is very tight in the end, uh, it would be wrong for Red Bull not giving this preference call. But as a driver, it feels very frustrating that sometimes you have an opportunity to win a race and you have to give your, your teammate um, the, the spot but that has we, we've seen that in motorsport in every category for thousands mm. of times so it doesn't really surprise me yeah it, it must just be so disheartening you know at the start of the season it was like you know I'm, I'm going to be competing for this this championship I'm I'm very much in uh, with the, with the shot just as much as everyone else and it, 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 I think the realisation might have dawned on him uh, at the Spanish Grand Prix uh, Ed that that he is the, the second driver and very much in second driver kind of mode for the team principal, for the strategists and, and the whole team, basically. Yeah, it's it's a strange one because I think Checo knows what his place is in that team. And obviously, I think over the season, it's very unlikely that he will be the title shot for them over Verstappen. The mm. confusion seems to have come from the fact that they said earlier in the race, oh, we'll swap rounds, but he might pay it back later. And this is where it always causes problems because if you're clear cut and you know that's one thing but if you say oh we'll do this and then maybe you'll change it around or you're a bit woolly about it then that's when surprise happens that was what annoyed Valtteri Bottas in Russia a few years ago and it hadn't been made clear before the race and because they thought they probably wouldn't have to do it and they kind of hoped to model their way through and then when they do it it annoys people I actually thought Checo dealt with it well he said look I think it's unfair but I'll do it which I think was a good team player I've no problem with him giving a little bit of pushback. In fact, Christian Horner said after the race, well, wouldn't be a racing driver if he wasn't a little bit irritated with it. But yeah, Checo knows what he's there for. His priority personally will be to get a new deal for next year and he's had a good start to the season. So he's absolutely doing his job. So I don't don't blame Red Bull for doing it at all. And I don't blame Perez for being a little bit irritated. Nobody (laughs) likes getting team orders. No one really likes issuing them. 
the only person really who likes them is the the beneficiary, but it, sometimes it's a fact of life. They should be kept to a minimum, but sometimes they're necessary. Well, let's talk about the the second Ferrari then. Uh, Signs looked like he was having a bit of a rough deal uh, at the start of, uh, of the race, but then actually he came good to, towards the end of the race and, and actually got up into uh, fourth, um, overtaking Lewis Hamilton just at the just at the end there. Coops, summarise Signs' race. Oh, it was a difficult one for him. Uh, he's not had the best season in Ferrari, and I think Mattia Bonotto's came out and said he is struggling this year with the car. He's not. He's just not comfortable with it. It's a kind of similar vein to what is Zach Brown saying about Ricardo. Uh, of course, there's a different kind of situation with Ricardo, but yeah, Zach's had a bit of a difficult one. It was a decent one. He got fourth. He kind of locked into fourth because of the Mercedes issue. He wouldn't have got it if Mercedes, if, you know, Mercedes didn't tell Hamilton he had to lift and coast as much as he did. Mm. Uh, you know, the crosswind that put him into the gravel, which caught out Verstappen as well. I mean, maybe Lucas could kind of, you know, talk a wee bit about how crosswinds affect cars. But yeah, it kind of, it kind of just epitomised how his season is. It's just he's just a bit unlucky. He's just not quite getting. The, he's not quite on the line with it. Mm. He's not confident when he thinks he's got it. You know, on free practice, he ends up in a barrier. He had a couple of races there that ended very, very quickly. Um, so, yeah, he's kind of had a bit of a stumble this year, which is disappointing considering how good he was last year. But, you know, he got himself fifth, managed to get himself some points, which is probably the best he could have got uh, under the circumstances. Probably could have been on the podium if he never binned it into the gravel. But, yeah. It's okay. He's, he does need to sort himself out, though. And, you know, hopefully in the next few races, we'll see him kind of getting to be more in tune with his car. Okay, let's move away from the front two teams and talk about Mercedes now. Uh, they do look better, albeit, you know, is it is it track-specific? Um, let's go to Lucas again. Lu- Lucas, what, what was your takeaways from uh, the Mercedes performance this weekend? I have no clue. Um, <laughs> for me, for me, it's um, there is a, a general tendency that the teams will the, the, he will the team will catch up uh, during the season because well you have a tendency if you if you have a flaw on your car and you can now with pictures you can three D model the other car you can put the car on the virtual wind tunnel you can find uh, different solutions you can change some some parts that you think is it's is flawed so the tendency is to mercedes to catch up a bit mm-hmm. um so it could have been track specific i have no idea um but i think we'll, we'll see mercedes is a very strong team there is a lot of good people there the team is structured the team has the budget uh the team has good drivers so i i, I think the team will, will catch up to red bull and, and ferrari i don't think they will have time enough to be a contender unless there is like a breakthrough mm-hmm. but these things they don't happen like this it's like small progresses so but they will they will eventually be more competitive I think. and we, we we're thinking they're going to get a win at some point this year not necessarily win the championship but I, we think they'll be challenging for for the top step oh, for sure i, I think it would be very very unlikely that they don't win a race ed george is uh just been brilliant this year compared to Lewis Hamilton, who's had a bad run of luck, maybe a bit of uh, you know reticence with the with the new car. What are your opinions on George Russell? He had an absolutely brilliant race uh, coming third on the podium. Yeah, I think as expected, he's acquitting himself really well. He's a 
very good driver. He's shown that with Williams and throughout his junior career as well. And also very good mindset, good approach and determination to do well. So, yeah, an impressive drive from him. Stood up well in battle with Max Verstappen, which was good to see as well. Oh, it's brilliant. And yeah, he, he's just he's just doing doing the job. I think there's there's inevitably with the comparisons with Hamilton's performance, there have been some things distorting it. I don't think he's really beating Hamilton in the way that some of the results have suggested. And in fact, there was a little bit of a difference setup wise that helped Hamilton a bit more in the race, but hindered him a bit in qualifying mm. just because it protected the size a bit more. So there's a little bit of a divergence between the two of them there but yeah Russell's just doing the job he's racking up those consistent results and that's what you need at this stage of the season you haven't got a winning car if you can just keep putting in those top top five top six finishes as he's been doing Hmm. and just learn your trade get your get your head down get used to being a Mercedes driver then that's a great platform for him for for the future so yeah he's he's done really really well there was very little doubt I think that he would do but you never 100% know until a driver gets up to the front and of course he's still got a little bit to go before he's right at the front, but he's, he's already shown he's capable of winning Grand Prix. The only question about George Russell is, is he capable of winning World Championships? That's that's the final hurdle for him. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but he's doing everything right at the moment. Uh, most consistent driver on the grid. Uh, he's the only one that's been in the top five for every single race this year. Um, Emma, are you impressed with George? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's still quite young in terms of like World Championships and stuff like that. He's still got quite a few more years, hopefully at Mercedes to you know, actually fight for a championship, maybe if they, you know, work on their car for next year and then come through, you know, with a championship winning car next year, you might see Lewis and George, you know, fighting each other. But yeah, I think it's really great to see him up there. It's always, it's always good to see, you know, there's now like three teams that are fighting for podiums, which is great. And, you know, having McLaren up there as well, hopefully soon, you know, it would be great to see, you know, an actual competition really happening at the top. Yeah, absolutely, and and as Ed said, the the, the battle with uh, where he was keeping Max Verstappen behind was was yeah, just that... a delight to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, so good to watch. Yeah, yeah, that was um, George Russell could now be the British Minister of Defence. <laughs> Did it, were you shocked to hear what Hamilton said when he was obviously kind of shuffled to the back because of the incident with Magnussen? Um, it was quite negative early on, but then obviously still still brought it back to fifth, but then lost it. And then went to sixth because of uh, uh, no to fifth because of uh, Carlos Sainz. We were you shocked to see, hear him being so negative so uh, yeah, you know, so early on? That was not a good attitude to have if you want to get to the points. I mean, you still managed it anyway. But imagine if he had just retired the car, and then he, they would have missed out on that whole points. Mm. So I think I think it just shows that maybe he was quite badly affected by what happened last year, and his mindset still isn't one hundred percent back to how it was, you know, how he's usually quite positive. But um, he did he did post about it afterwards saying that, like, he, he was silly for saying that and that, you know, look how he managed to get points in the end, even after saying that. So, yeah, it's good to see. And as a Lewis Hamilton fan myself, I like seeing him in the points too, so. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the, the next couple of teams. Uh, who was next? Uh, Ocon and Alpine, uh, Alonso. They, they all had a pretty... Pretty decent showing this weekend, I thought. Uh, what do you think, uh, Ed, uh, from from the Alpine side of things? Yeah, qualifying didn't really go well for them. Bit of miscommunication with Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon wasn't quite able to get the best out of the car. He thought there was more in it, but yeah, the, the race pace of that car was really good. Ocon said he was actually quite surprised by how quickly he was making up ground early in the race that first stint got him up there. He's helped a bit by the fact Schumacher and Ricardo were struggling a bit. Yeah. But 
he just managed to, to to make the moves and lay the foundations for his race. And Alonso, good first stint, a little bit of undercutting, and there he is in the points from the from the back of the grid, having taken that engine change, which was a strategic one because they they think all things being equal, which is a pretty big ask with so many races. Mm. He should be able to get to the end of the season with no other power unit penalties, but that's dependent on nothing else going wrong. So, yeah. so we'll see. But they're a strange team, Alpine. Very, they can be very erratic. They're not necessarily the most dependable team, a bit of a yo-yo team, but you just sort of often you see within these sort of signs of good progress, and you think, oh yeah, they're really getting somewhere. But still they're bouncing around in, in that midfield. So it's positive. Their upgrade worked pretty well. And they're still up the sharp end of, of the midfield battle. But in the long term, we need to see a little bit more from, from that team. It is a works team. So mm. yeah, good. Good for them. Well executed race, but I'd still like to see see more from them. Absolutely. Um, I want to move on to McLaren now because we're not so secret McLaren fans on the uh, Everything F1 podcast. Uh, Lucas, you've driven against Daniel Ricciardo uh, in your in your time uh, in your career. I'm guessing he was there in 2010, wasn't mm. he? I don't think I raced against him. No, he was always a little bit younger than me. Oh, is he? Oh, I, th- I thought I thought he was well, there he in 2010. Here in he lives he... here in my building. Actually, he's in the sixth floor here. Up. Oh, is he? Oh, okay. We can go and we can go and actually knock at his door and check it out. I oh. saw him actually. I said hello to him actually today. Leaving, he was. Well, you absolutely have to do that, but not not yeah. necessarily <laughs> now. Uh, <laughs> we would love that. That would be amazing. Um, Okay, so what do you think he is with with Daniel Ricciardo at the moment, and his is is it his mindset? Is he just not comfortable with the car? What what, what can you what can you say about him? Because his teammate, for example, was quite poorly, uh, and he still managed to get that car into eighth position. Um, is it is it is it something that's that's an easy change, or is it something that's intrinsically, you know, going going wrong with him this year? There is the easy answer and the difficult one. Um, uh, as always, uh, there is um, there is nuances to this to this answer. Sure. And um, the, the the truth lies, I would say that a driver has a certain behavior and a certain driving style that sometimes fits uh, what the car is doing, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and I would say that the greatest drivers they kind of try to ad- they, they adapt. But we've seen, uh, or at least I've seen uh, during many years watching, uh, being in this sport for now 30 years, sometimes uh, it's just something that you find and something that you understand about the car that gives you an extra edge. I can mm. give you a, a few examples. For, um, I don't know if you remember how Alonso used to drive the, to, his championship winning car. He used to s- steer completely the car, like, I don't know, 100 degrees, and like slide the front tires around. And that's a very, very poor driving technique. You uh-huh. never do that in any race car. Uh, but for that car that I drove, actually, was the first car I tested in Formula One. Because you could choose, the tires were free back then. Michelin was against Bridgestone. Yeah. They made it work. And, uh, and Alonso had a huge advantage because he learned how to drive like that. And he tried for many years to follow that driving style and never worked anymore. So he had to back off and kind of start again. Vettel was like the king when the Pirellis were introduced. Mm. I developed those Pirelli tires. Uh, they were extremely, extremely difficult to all work on the, oper- on the right operating window of the tire. Mm. 
<laughs> and Vettel, for some reason, his driving style with the Red Bull fit very well that time. And he won four championships. And now he's struggling as well. Or last year, or with the Ferrari, he was already struggling. Uh, and he's struggling with the... So, um, there are... So, there is this factor. And there is a factor of, let's say, that the, the drivers are probably not 100% motivated. Or if he sees a difficulty, it's already, let's say, he's already in Formula 1 for 10 years. Um, and I don't know if he's going to continue McLaren or not, or if maybe he's told him already he's not going to continue. So there is always the mental aspect as well. Mm. I don't know how he's doing in his private life. You never know if he's having some uh, internal problems. or So th- there is a technique that is applied to driving the car, and there is, of course, the mental aspect of the racing driver that could change and could uh, be pumped up or, or cooled off. Uh, and I cannot answer you because I, I don't I don't know the details. Mm. Well, all we hope as, as McLaren fans is is he, he gets back to his previous winning performances because we we love him. We know he's, he's, a, he's a really great character to have on the grid, and we want to see him doing well. Um, it's just stuck in a rut at the moment. It, it's uh, ra- racing is is uh, it's, it, it is a, a game theory. Not everyone can do well at, all the time because True. you're always comparing yourself with others. So it, it is. It is a tough sport. It's a tough sport that you need. You need to. You want to cheer for somebody, but basically they could be in their best form. But if the others are in a better form, it doesn't matter how good you are at that moment, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and as, as you mentioned, uh, Alonso is is great at adapting to new kind of new surroundings, new cars. Uh, he can pretty much drive absolutely anything to. You know, the, you drive drive the wheels off it. Um, not everyone has that ability to, to kind of adapt themselves uh, to every single car. Ed, sorry, Ed, anything to add about uh, Ricardo? Yeah, he's been trying hard to get on top of it. I asked him about this on Saturday, and he said it's still difficult just to put together that the ideal lap. There's always little things that catch him out. He's been working very, very hard, and he's been finding it still difficult. So I do wonder if it's getting to a point where he's wondering if he'll ever. Get it. He's a very high quality driver, but the point about adaptability is important. I think it's a great example elsewhere in F1 this season. Remember last season, Max Verstappen in the Red Bull, quite a pitch sensitive car, the high rate, weight transfer made it quite lively, very, very difficult for the other drivers who drove that car to get performance out of it, but Verstappen could live with it. Mm. But then in, from the moment testing started, Verstappen in this Red Bull, a completely different car, ground effect car, driving much more Alan Prost-like smoothly, you know, being very careful with the way he takes the curve, not avoiding them, but just trying to keep the car calm and stable. And he just like that. I mean, I say just like that. I'm sure he was working on the simulator, but he understood the mm. need to adapt and he was able to do it and still be really, really quick. There's not many drivers that can do that all the time. And that ultimate adaptability is the difference. And I think that's an understated facet of what Verstappen's done this season, but he just turned up in testing and bang, he got used to it just like that. You know, he's not just a, a guy who jumps in the car and hangs on. He, he thinks about it. Yeah, I mean, it's good to see. And it, hopefully he doesn't run, uh, run away with it too too much and uh, score too many points too quickly. But yeah, he is looking in control of that car and in control of the, the, the championship as well now. Um, OK, I'm gonna, we, don't wanna, we don't need to touch on every single uh, team and driver, um, but I'm going to go to each, each one of you now and just get a kind of little blurb about somebody that you were either impressed with or not very impressed with this weekend. And I'll go to Coops because we haven't heard you for a little bit. Who were you impressed with or not impressed with this weekend that you want to chat about? Hmm. I mean, there's, there were so many wee things going on. Maybe Sonoda. 
last year he came out, we were all really excited by him, then he had a really terrible kind of, well, majority of his season was pretty terrible last year. And it was a very solid drive, got him selling at the points, didn't seem to do anything wrong. And you know he didn't really do anything wrong because you very rarely saw him on telly. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, it was it was good. Just before we move on, I just wanted to touch on the McLaren thing quickly. What I've noticed with McLaren recently is a very is a slight change in the kind of talk about Ricardo. Before it was very much we're going to help him adapt, we're going to sort him out, we're going to, we're going to work with him, which I'm not saying they're not doing, but I think Zach Brown's been quoted as a couple of times. I think during the, the Miami kind of build-up, he said that he kind of hinted that Ricardo's win in the one-two wasn't that good because Norris could have passed him if we told him not to pass, if he'd let them race, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit kind of still in the thunder. And then in Sky Sports, there was a comment, there was a chat just there, and he and he made the come, and it was you know Zach Brown has said I don't know the context of how he was asked. I'd imagine he probably was, but it was basically saying he's not lived up to the expectations that was expected of him. Now to going from we are supporting and publicly saying it. Now a lot of things are probably discussed in private around the fact that he wasn't performing the way they wanted. To now publicly now saying we're not happy with you, it's a it's a bit of a change. Mm. It makes you wonder whether it's Lucas kind of touched on potentially they're already talking to other people because there are a couple of drivers I'm sure coming out coming up to the end of the contract uh, this year that they may think should we just take a punt because I think Ricardo's due. Uh, I think he's got another year if I'm right. So I've just noticed a change as a slight shift, uh, which makes me wonder if there's if they've kind of lost patience in him and they're deciding maybe to kind of maybe even look somebody else or maybe they're trying a different tact with them. There have been rumours circulating, but they're only rumours and you cannot take anything uh, absolutely uh, as fact because it is just that, um, that there was yeah. going to be a, a driver swap um, between, th- between two teams. Yeah, I don't think McLaren are the type of team uh, like Red Bull to swap a driver mid-season. I think they would keep him to the end of the year and then maybe make the call at the end of the year to kind of uh, buy him out your last year of his contract and mm. someone else becomes available. There are a lot of young talent out there that's that's ready to go. Piastri's sitting, waiting. You've got other ones in F2 that could come up. You've got... Nick uh, DeVries. Nick DeVries. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Gasly's kind of his career. He's got potential, but he's kind of stuck in that rut of Red Bull. He's not going to go back into the main team. He's he's kind of owned and got as far as he can with Alpha Tauri, maybe giving him a slightly better piece of equipment so we can do a wee bit further up the field. So, you know, there are options. And how long do you stick with Ricardo and hope that he finds that wee missing ingredient that will propel him up on a consistent basis? Mm. He might never find it. So how long do you wait? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on because I realise we have you know, spoken about McLaren for quite a little while. Um, Emma, who would you like to speak about? Uh, who, who was your unsung hero or villain from the weekend? Hero, I'm going to say Alonso. I think not doing well in qualifying and then coming P17 and then deciding, you know, the team decided to be tactical about it and take the penalty while he was near the back of the grid. Then He then goes behind two Williams, which their car has a lot better speed then, so he can overtake them. And mm-hmm. the fact that he managed to get up to the points, which is really great considering that it's a track that is quite difficult to overtake on. 
you know, I know they all have DRS, you know, unless you're Max Verstappen and your DRS doesn't work. But um, <laughs> I think that was really impressive. And it's really good that he did get points, especially in his home race. And I think um, his attitude towards it as well, because I did see an interview before, uh, after qualifying, just before the race, when he said that it wasn't a good day yesterday, but he's just going to concentrate on racing today and get to the points. And that was even knowing that he was at the back of the grid. So that mm. positive attitude, I think, really helped him. And I think that was really impressive. So, yeah. Uh, Lucas, have you got someone that you'd like to speak about in general, either from this year, um, who's impressed you, or from the race uh, in Spain, who who impressed you this weekend or disappointed you this this weekend? I don't have the the right knowledge to, uh, I I would say, to answer this question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know the the details. Uh, In terms of result, um, would you agree with Lewis Hamilton being driver of the day, bringing it back from after that incident with Magnussen uh, and getting it back down to kind of fifth and well fourth at one point and then fifth? Yeah, I think he did a great race. I, I don't know about being driver of the day or not, but he did a great race. Maybe uh, maybe Sanz is not taking the all the the potential that the car has. Um, probably, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know about a lot about the others. That's okay. Ed, same question for you. Have you got a hero or a zero that you'd like to speak about? It's probably worth a mention for Valtteri Bottas. Had a good run for Alfa Romeo again in sixth place. And he could have been higher. The strategy wasn't quite on point there. He did a two-stopper. There was a little window where if they were really quick, they could have switched to a three-stopper and yeah. maintained the track position they needed to. But they missed that. And then he, he ended up in uh, in sixth place rather than fifth or fourth. But he's had a really good start to the season. And he's been picking up good points, but most races you look at it and there's maybe something that's just gone against them mm. that means or they've not got right that means they could have done even better that's that's a strong car that Alfa Romeo and it's doing well and Bottas is really enjoying I think being in a new environment and being the being the main man in so far as driving the team his way and trying to help his teammate Joe Guan Yu along the way as well so I think it's nice to see Bottas doing well and I thought he drove really well as well he lost a load of track time on Friday as well but he was there quite happily made it through to Q3 and, and leading the way in the midfield. So, yeah, he, yeah. I think it job he's doing is very good. And it's no great surprise, I think, said in the past, if you take the job he's doing in Mercedes up against an absolute great in Lewis Hamilton yeah. and put him anywhere else, it would look a lot better because he's operating at a high level. Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes people go up against genuine greats and they can be made to look ordinary rather unfairly when they're still very good so I think we're seeing that exactly that from Bottas this year just I, I don't think he's driving really that much better maybe a tiny bit just because of his environment but mm. it just shows the the level he's been operating at for the previous five years oh absolutely yeah there's there's been certainly no doubt of his talent there this year at all um and a, a couple of moments where he's uh maybe re- forgotten which team he was driving for and is let what what seemed to be uh let Hamilton passed but uh, uh, no he, he's he's having a great season and I'm sure he's having loads of fun uh, being there and not having the pressure of kind of fighting for his uh, seat next year he's got that long longer term contract and he's certainly uh, in, in a good position um, for, for, for the moment anyway um, okay well that's that's pretty much our summary of the of the Spanish Grand Prix I hope you enjoyed it we've got a race coming up this weekend it's a, that's the joy of triple headers double headers and triple headers and um, we're gonna have the, that a few times this year um, I don't want to go too much into uh, the Monaco Grand Prix because we all know what to expect now it'd be glitzy glamorous uh, of course and a great atmosphere and, and all the drivers absolutely love it 
Um, but I just want to get a prediction uh, about who you think will either win or any bold predictions that you want to make for the weekend, just so we can kind of, kind of cross the Monaco uh, preview uh, off our list. So, Coops, what I want from you is I want a, a top three and a bold prediction. Uh, Leclerc, Verstappen and Bottas. So you think Leclerc is going to going to get that's, rid of that kind of... That's my bold prediction as well. <laughs> There'll be no more Monaco curse. It's got a curse, hasn't it, that follows no, him around. No Monaco. more, nothing. He will forget the, the cold sweats every time he thinks about crashing the loudest car into the barrier. Uh, <laughs> you know that that that, that my, that's nightmare fuel. That I mean, that's that's shocking. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, I think if this is if he's going to do it, it has to be this year. The car's good, reliability seems to be of the better end of the scale compared to some of the other teams. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking that we're going to we're going to see him get up there. Probably going to be completely wrong, and all three <laughs> of those cars are going to be out of the first lap. But it- you know. It does look like it's going to be raining in Monaco this weekend. Uh, Lucas, oh, uh, yeah, thunderstorms. What's the weather? What's the weather looking like? No, so I was just playing football now uh, with uh, Leclerc, Sainz, Alonso. So we were just on the football game just before the podcast. Oh wow! And um, um, so I could say my prediction is that Leclerc is out because I kick his leg. Out <laughs> <in the football laughs> oh, who won, by the way? Uh, who won that game? Um, I don't know because I left after the half half time. Uh, I played the half time and I left. Oh, okay. I think I think the, I think maybe the, because of, there was the, the the drivers against the Monaco All Stars, and I think the drivers won maybe one wow. or two zero maybe. I, I'm not sure. Not sure. But the not level sure. of the game was horrible. Yeah, it was not <laughs> not good to watch uh, at all. Uh, and uh, um, it's raining actually. So there was an event after the game, but it started to rain. Actually, that's why I left because the, the clouds came quite okay. heavy and I was like, okay, I need to walk home. So I, I walked home quite straight and uh, it's, it's raining. So the, the weather is a bit dodgy. It would be very good if it rains because otherwise with these cars, Monaco would be very boring. Mm. It, even it, with the DRS. It's going to hopefully play a part in the in the event. So can you make a top three prediction and a bold prediction as well for the for the weekend? I think it will be Red Bull, Red Bull Ferrari. I don't think it changes much. In the past, you 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 would have been able to change the weight distribution and some of the features of the car, and cars with like short wheelbase uh, would do better. Mm-hmm. But now it's pretty much standard. So I think the the order the order will follow. Um, I, I don't. We could have like a wild horse coming uh, if it rains in qualifying and then the races, there is like, um, I don't know, safety cars and stuff that I think mm-hmm. could hold position. So Monaco could happen anything. But um, uh, one thing is for sure that if we see one or two overtakes in the race actually happening on track, it will be too much. <laughs> the cars are, the, the cars, the, the cars are, the cars are way too big for Monaco now. They definitely oh, yeah. need to. Um, it's just the car is too big. Uh, there is uh, literally nothing. The straights are too short. This track was built for like 1950s uh, Formula One cars. The the, the 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 car is completely different, and uh, it's definitely not made for this type of track. So yeah, either they have to adapt Monaco, or they have to kind of find a a, a better solution because. Uh, there is a glamour, there is everything, but the racing itself is uh, so it's, it's not the best race. 
where, where are you sitting uh, during the race? Then, are you, have you got a nice balcony view, or are you going to go down to the harbour? What, what are you going to do? Uh, no, actually, no. Actually, my house here is in the other side, so luckily, I'm completely away, and I'm travelling, so I'm not here for the race. Ah, okay. So, uh, so I was here. Uh, I'm going to Switzerland. We have the second round of the e-scooter race, which I co-founded. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna check it out, and I come back Saturday night, and then I watch the race um uh sunday probably from uh, 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 either the paddock or uh, or, or a, a friend of mine has a place that i can watch the race very nice okay uh ed your top three and a bold prediction for the weekend yeah i'm leaning towards it being a ferrari weekend because they're strong in the slow course you never really know with monaco because it's a very very unusual trim mm. the cars will run in but you know, Charles Leclerc, it's hard to look past him. Carlos Sainz is good around Monaco, though. And yeah. this, he might see this as a nice chance. But at the same time, it's not necessarily a track if you're not really confident. He's been a little bit lacking in confidence in the rear end of the car at times. So a lot will depend on how comfortable he's feeling. But Leclerc, a home win in the Monaco Grand Prix for the first time. Louis Chiron in 1931 was the last one. So they've been waiting a long time there. And actually, we, we've already had uh, had what I was going to do for my bold prediction, which was suggesting maybe a big result for Bottas in the in the yeah. Alfa Romeo. The, the Alfa Romeo is good in the, the low-speed stuff. He's good around Monaco, not always the luckiest driver there, but that was sort of my uh, my, my long shot. But uh, I, I, it could be, yeah. I mean, it's going to be difficult. Mercedes will be decent there, so will Red Bull. So it's going to be difficult, but it's one of those races. If you, if you nail the qualifying lap, then you're in a very, very good position. It's it's a, a bit of a uh, a qualifying race, obviously. So that, that will decide what's possible. There's always there's always a few drivers who overachieve on on Saturday, and also a few are underachieve and doing for a bit of a, a difficult afternoon. Uh, go on then, Emma. Your your last but not least, uh, you you had kind of grown a, ta- a tail for a moment there. Yeah, um, I wondered if you could see that. Sorry, my cat's just walking across the screen. She wants to get involved. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say exactly the same as Coops, I think. Uh, only I'm going to go for George Russell third because I think he's really good in the rain. Um, and I'm going to go for Charles Leclerc at the top because I think he's going to break the curse and I want to see him break the curse. And I think it would be great for him to have, you know, a win this weekend after what happened last weekend. Okay. Well, the Monaco Grand Prix is this weekend. Uh, it's the circuit length is 3.337 kilometers. We're having 78 laps. The first Grand Prix was in 1950. Uh, and that means the total race distance uh, after 78 laps of 260.286 kilometers. Uh, the current lap record is held by the seven time world champion, Lewis Hamilton. And he, he did do the fastest lap in 2021, uh, one minute, 12.909 seconds. Uh, can't expect uh, any any uh, fastest laps to to kind of fall at this time this point this year, um, but you never know. We never know what will happen uh, in Monaco. Anything can happen. Support for everything F one is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the waist grooming. Their products are precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped performance package is the ultimate in men's hygiene bundle. You could join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code EF1. You can use that code at manscaped.com. If my maths is correct, that's 8 million balls. Well, give or take a few. Manscaped are that good that even even me, the the reclusive tech guy, had to come and, come and say something. But someone's come in 
And as most men know, one of the worst things that can happen in summer is sweaty bollocks. When you're walking around and every, everything gets stuck, but with the Manscaped 4.0 trimmer, a little bit of ball toner, and then those fantastic anti-chafe boxes, you would be able to, I don't know why you would, but you would be able to wear jeans on a hot summer's day. I mean, if, if you see a man walking about in jeans, you know why. It's that. So the Performance Package 4.0, which I have to say is probably the best bargain for what you get in it, it's a game changer. It comes with their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, which is this little number. It's waterproof. It's got a, uh, it's got a little light on it. So you, you're not going to miss the spot. You can be as artistic as you like, not saying I have, but, you know, maybe. The um, crop preserver and ball deodorant will leave you feeling as fresh as you look. The performance boxes I don't need to bang on about. They're very good. And a travel bag to hold all your goodies in, which even by itself is a, is a pretty nice bit of kit. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code EF1 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code EF1. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped, just like Scott does now. Back to the podcast. Okay, well, let's move on to our interview of Lucas Stigarassi. Uh, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. Uh, we just want to delve into your, your whole career, really. You, was it always motorsport for you? Was it motorsport from a very young age um, that you wanted to be a part of? Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> I decided to be a, a racing driver, a professional racing driver, when Ayrton Senna died. Uh, oh, so okay. I was nine years old. I was in Brazil, and Brazil stopped. Uh, it was... Something that I, I don't think I will ever see it again. And anybody that you could you could have a president dying or you could have, yeah, there is no such celebrity today. You could have Neymar dying. Mm. Or, it, it wouldn't cause not even close to the commotion that happened in that country when Senna died. Mm. And it created a mark. I was a kid. I liked go-karting, but I was like doing go-karting, doing other stuff as well, playing football, and doing skateboarding and stuff. And then with that, I was like, okay, maybe uh, I can have, uh, if I have a little bit of that impact that he had in the country, it would be something very good. And then I decided to take motorsport seriously. And then I did go-karting, then Formula 3, British Formula 3, then European Formula 3, then Formula 2, then Formula mm -hmm. 1, then Endurance, and all Formula so you, you've been in many a formula. You've done, obviously, a lot of open-wheel stuff. You've also done some... Um, uh, the, the, some of the, the, the sports car stuff as, as well, haven't you? The endurance uh, racing. Um, so what, what's been your favourite formula? Let, let's leave Formula One out of there because I'm sure that's, that's, that holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. But kind of on the way to Formula One, uh, uh, what, what's been, what's been a, your favourite kind of formula to drive? Uh, no, no, no. I, I hated Formula One. Uh, uh, <laughs> was that just, just because... Was that just because just of the because team the that you were with? Yeah, because you're not competitive. If you're not in the right team, uh, you can do the best race of your life and you finish 14. Mm. So I felt very frustrated there in, in F1. Uh, when I was there, I was not really motivated after half a year. Uh, I was overweight. It was a big mess. Anyway, um, so it's very hard to say, but I, I would say that um, Formula E definitely has a, a very special place in, in my career. I've been racing here 
well, we're racing Formula E for uh, eight seasons now and uh, uh, with very, very high level drivers and having fun and, you know, uh, with the cars that are close, very close to each other. So you always like have to find this extra edge, try to outsmart them on the battery use. Mm. So I had a lot of fun. In terms of the best car I ever driven, I think was the Le Mans uh, 2016 Audi car, the last Audi car, which had uh, 1,150 horsepower for uh, uh, 800 kilos. Wow. And it was just a beast to drive around Austin, around Fuji, around Le Mans. So I had a lot of fun there with the Audi as well. So uh, it, it is very hard to, to pinpoint which one I like the most, but different uh, have different phases in my career that I really enjoyed. You, did you enjoy your time in uh, GP2? Was it GP2 where you uh, came yeah, very close second then, to yes. team over? Actually, I, I raced with Lewis Hamilton's car. So after Lewis uh, won the championship, he moved to Formula 1. And then the team hired two new drivers, one from Red Bull called Michael Ammermuller. And he won now, I don't know, five, six times the Porsche Cup and some GT3 in Germany has been racing also in GT cars. So he hired Michael Ammermuller and that was the second driver I got hired by the team. And I drove with Lewis chassis. So all the data that I compared in GP2 was against Lewis. And I finished <laughs> second in the championship with Timo Glock mm. in the last round. And then you you teamed up with Timo Glock in the in the Virgin, wasn't it? Yes. Was that was that was there a kind of an, a kind of a rivalry? Obviously, there was a rivalry from the GP two days. But did did you kind of help each other in the end? And were you, did you have a good friendship in the end? <sighs> Not a good friendship, uh, <laughs> but um, but we we in the end, at least in the beginning, we, we were working together to make the team better because the team was such in a bad uh, state that we had to work together to, 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 to make some progress. Mm. Anyone else got a question for, for, for Lucas uh, at this, this aspect of his career? I can chip in less with a question, more just an observation, just to support what Lucas was saying about his F1 season. It was a good few races, wasn't it, Lucas, before you actually had a car that could fit enough fuel in it to have a proper race, wasn't it? They, they'd underspect the fuel tank. And I think <laughs> you got the first finish in Malaysia, was it, where you had to sort of draw I still fuel beat, saving I all still the way? Timo, I still beat Timo Glock to that championship because of uh, a 14th place I finished in Malaysia. So I still finish in front of Timo. <laughs> um, uh, so so basically, there were 12 teams in Formula 1, 11 teams they chose a fuel tank supplier, and we chose some somebody else. <laughs> so clearly, clearly, <laughs> there was something wrong with that supplier. And I was, I'm a, I'm a heavy driver. So when I'm fully kitted up, my weight is about 80 kilos and the car was already overweight. And because of the fuel tank, we could not run the fuel tank to zero. We had always to have like 15 kilos of fuel. So I was already like starting the, the compared to Timo, which is like 65. So I started yeah. already with six, with 15 kilos more compared to him. And I don't know, 35, 40, 50 kilos compared to every other racing car. Um, wow. So there was not this rule that you have today that the driver plus the seat needs to reach a minimum weight. You could just offset the weight of the car with the weight of the driver. So, I mean, 15 kilos, you start already the, the, the free practice, four tenths behind, and then the, the, you have to carry in qualifying another 15, 20 kilos of fuel more mm -hmm. than everybody else. It was very frustrating. And then you know that when you start the race, you're not going to finish because you don't have enough fuel. <laughs> or, uh, 
it must have just been yeah like you say fr- just completely frust- a frustrating situation um w- was was there ever any kind of discussions with other teams that may, might might have taken you on at the time or was it was it because you not, weren't able not, to prove yourself yeah, in a car not at all because you are in such a bad position that yeah. you need to, it was even impossible to show anything uh, um around so there was never actually there was before so i tested for brown uh, actually honda and oh, okay. uh, in the in the in the winter of 2008, I I did a test with with Honda against Jensen, and I was one or two tenths off Jensen, and in the end Honda collapsed. Yeah. And Brown took over, and Brown basically didn't want to take any risk, and he ha- he re- rehired Barrichello and Jensen for the for the team. Um, but the idea was to replace Barrichello with a young guy uh, back then. You, so you, you drove the Renault there as well, didn't you? Pre, and then I drove, pre-season. I drove and, and then basically Renault paid my whole career in single seater. So I drove the Formula One the first time in 2005, the championship winning car was my first Formula One test. And I drove in 2007, 2008, 2000, 2006, no, 2007, 8, and 9. And then Renault pulled off after the Singapore scandal, which I was on the pit wall and I knew exactly what was going on. Oh, oh. I, I knew it from the data, not because I knew it from. Oh, okay. I hey. knew it when I look at the data that the throttle trace didn't look normal. But who am I to say if it? I mean, I was just a reserve driver, so I was. Yeah, and you, and you don't want to bite the hands that feed you, so you don't want to report that anything. No, that you I, saw I mean, suspicious. I, had, I look at the data. It looked very weird the way he crashed, but I just thought Nelson was a bad driver. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't really thought that uh, that he. I, I thought it was like an honest mistake, just like mm. okay, he decided to go flat out in a place he couldn't. But in the end, it was very clear. I, I can absolutely believe that seeing the data at the time, you were suspicious because obviously that data came out later. And he had to try quite hard, didn't he? It's like he had a go and it didn't quite, he had to sort of, I mean, really, really floor it to go. Yeah, and I drove in Singapore. I know how these corners are. You know, I, I knew how it were. And then uh, I knew there was a lift there and there was no lift. So how, how can you do it? Oh, juicy, juicy, juicy. Coops, have you got a question for Lucas? Yes. Uh, if you could pick a historic car from any series, Formula One or whatever, that you would want to drive, what one would it be and why? It's a great question. I never thought about it. Um, I drove this 80s uh, Copper Sucker F1 car oh. in Interlagos. Uh, nice. And it's it's like a tuna can with an engine stuck on the back. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like terrifying to drive. And I think what actually Charles, uh, he was very lucky with his uh, crash in Monaco because if it happens in a, in a fast part of the track, it would have really hurt himself because those cars are not safe at all mm. uh, to, to drive uh, uh, but um, coming back to the which car I would like to drive um, I would say probably one of the Ferraris maybe from the Schumacher times um, maybe 2003 2004 with the V10 I, I, the first F1 I drove was with the late the, what the late the latest model of the V10 uh, World Championship winning car. I drove mm. in September 2005 in Harris, and the car had a thousand horsepower, 500 kilos. It was just a beast. You could, I mean, the step from Formula Three, which I was doing at the time. By the way, I, I was I just won Macau uh, Formula Three 
over mm. Kubica and Vettel. Kubica was second, Vettel was third. Mm. And then they gave me the F1 seat, and, uh, the F1 drive. And uh, the, the, the car was, it was such a big step. Nowadays, it's, it, it is a big step, but not such a big step, but it was such a big step from Formula 3 mm-hmm. because there wasn't Formula 2 back then. Uh, that uh, it was a shock. It was like an amazing car to, to drive. So if I could drive, uh, I would say the V10s, uh, F1s, the latest V10s, the Renault, probably the Ferrari. That would be very cool. Bring back the V10s. Also, it's also a podcast that we listen to as well. Yeah, um... I know, I know. Uh, that's, actually very, that's actually, for me, depending how you want to frame sustainability or the future of F1, uh, there is no reason why not bring back any type of engine, actually. Absolutely. Well, let, let, let's talk about sustainability because you were you were brought in very early on uh, to kind of develop the Formula E brand and the the, the actual car to, to to start the whole Formula E uh, championship with, weren't you? You were you were kind of integral to the to the creation of the of the series. Uh, yes. So when Alejandro got the the license to do Formula E, I was the basically the second employee of the series. And my, my job was not to develop the car because there was no car, actually. there was uh, We didn't even know which car was going to be because <laughs> nobody has ever built an electric race car. Hmm. So it was uh, just a building process of the whole championship, which I learned a lot. And I'm very thankful of Alejandro for... Um, uh, we've been to like meetings with cities, with partners, with sponsors, with um, uh, people building the cars and seeing Formula grow from like um, just an idea and like a very simple series in the first year to become uh, um, a billion dollar business uh, in a, in a, in, a, in a, well, in July now it would be 10 years of, uh, of, of my involvement in Formula E has been a, a, a great, has been really great from two sides from the sporting side. So I could have my career. I could do races that I still enjoy but also from the business side to see a business build up from zero to a billion dollar idea mm. uh, to see going from like two employees to uh, hundreds of employees. So it's been a, a very good journey. And I feel that um, um, I, I helped to build uh, something which is helping with the technology, with the sustainability, creating jobs for engineers, for drivers, for uh, journalists, for media, for uh, increasing like, the pie of motorsport to a different, different, um, different people. So uh, I'm very proud to to have done that. And of course, let, we we can't go any further without saying you actually won the season in 2016 to 2017. Um, was that kind of your greatest sporting sporting achievement today? Um, yes, w- one of them uh, definitely. Um, being a champion uh, in Formula E was something I always dreamed of, and it was very close uh, in the in the years before and the year after. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, I have great memories of uh, of winning the championship. I arrived to the final round, twenty two points behind Buemi, and I managed to turn it around and to win by uh, I think sixteen points. Wow. So it, it was a a great weekend and um, yeah I, I i have it a special special place in my heart big celebrations uh, when when that happened i guess yeah we had a very big party in canada um a very big one nice even uh, missed Emma. the flight the next day 
Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's that's it. That's a that's a sign of a good party if you actually miss the flight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ever, have you got a question for? Well, I know you've got some questions for Lucas because you've told me about him. <laughs> <laughs> I was just um, wondering your opinion on fan boost in general. Like, do you like the fact that the fans can get involved, or would you rather just leave it, you know, to just do the racing? Um, that's a very interesting question. I think Fanboost played a, a very interesting role uh, trying to bring fans to be involved in sports. I think that's um, something that's um, still going to have a play uh, in the future. Not as Fanboost directly, but how we can interact more with fans, how we can make the fans more. Uh, Formula One is such a complex environment. It's very, very hard to understand all the points, all the, you know, all the, the, the technicalities, all the rules, everything. So how, how do you bring the fans closer? And Fan Boost was a great idea, was very well executed. Uh, I'm not a biggest fan of Fan Boost, the way it's organized. I even proposed to have like a, a Fan Boost for everybody, that if, you, if your fans vote, let's say a certain amount, everybody gets one Fan Boost. Because then there is no really a sporting advantage. It becomes a strategic tool. And you still kind of engage with the fans. So it serves the purpose of engaging with the fans without having a sporting element to it. So I proposed that a few years ago. Uh, uh, but today, if you ask me if I would like it in or out, uh, the way it is, I would say out. But... I think there is other ways of getting the, the fans to interact. I think that the, the, what Fambus proposed, the, the general idea, I think it's good and should be uh, evolved in motorsport to bring the, friend, the fans closer to the, to the, to the action. It, it does tend to be the ex-Formula 1 drivers that, that seem to get the fan boost quite regularly, don't they, uh, within, within Formula E. So it does kind of give them that slight, very slight, uh, did, well, advantage uh, over the, the non-Formula 1 drivers. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, uh, in terms of statistics, uh, I think Van Dorn got the, pretty much every fan boost that he, <laughs> since he joined <laughs> Formula E. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's... Massa kind of also. And, um, but, but I can say with a big amount of certainty that you don't win a race or lose a race because of Fembus. No. Fembus has a slight help, but it doesn't change the outcome of this of the event. Ed, do you watch uh, Formula E regularly? Yeah I, yeah, I try to keep on top of it. It's it depends whether it clashes sometimes, but I try and uh, try and follow it. So yeah, I, I'm pro Formula E. I've, I've never really seen the the reasons why people have. Uh, have disliked i've been to a race for a while in fact the last formula e race i went to was in the first season which i don't think lucas will remember very fondly because he did win that race for maybe an hour or two before being excluded at uh, tempelhof in berlin so uh, yeah i uh, do remember very well that race. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah I, I don't know if you I don't, I don't know if you will uh, look back that on that one particularly fondly but yeah it's 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 an interesting championship and it's something very very different you have a lot of championships around that are all small variations on a theme but this one's Quite a big variation, and that's that's a good thing. Have you got a question for Lucas about about the kind of maybe the, about the future of Formula E? Uh, 
Well, I've got, I've got various ones for him. I was going to ask him if he uh, if he was enjoying his new nickname that his teammate gave him uh, recently, um, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether whether that's one that you'd be putting on your merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> what's the new nickname, Lucas? <laughs> oh, Ed, what's the new nickname? You're apparently the butcher of Formula E. According to uh, Eduardo Mortara, that, that would look great on T-shirts and mugs. You could do a little sideline. <laughs> and I replied that I'm vegetarian, so there is no way I can be a butcher, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought I'll rise above it. I won't go down that line. I won't even mention it. So um, yeah, but, yeah the, the future's interesting. I, I did have one sort of question for the now, which is perhaps reflects the fact that I'm always interested in the kind of dynamics of cars and. And driving, obviously, Lucas, you've changed teams, different powertrain, same car, same tyres, everything else is pretty much the same. Does that actually make much tangible difference to the to the way you physically drive the car? Because it's all yes. very, very similar on paper, but I guess there's characteristics that shift. It's, it's a bit like F1, you know, we have the same tyres, same electronics, uh, just have different aerodynamics, but the, the cars, they look today very similar. Formula E is, in a, in a way... Uh, kind of the same way, but the, the the software behind the hardware, the setup is very different. So you you have you have to get used to the driving. You have to get used to how to get that extra ten um, out of your lap time. It, it's not easy, and sometimes it's very hard for you to convince the team that you need something else. So you say to the team, "Look, I need something that direction," and they will reply to you, "Ah, but all the other drivers they drove here with." X direction and they did well. Why are you asking for why? No, I'm asking for why because that's my preference. Uh, that's maybe I like to drive a more oversteer car or a more understeer car. And the team uh, takes a long time for you to convince the team to change to something that you want. And that's some, sometimes uh, one of the problems we see in F1 that the driver does not adapt to the new car and there is the other way around. Um, that's why you need a good engineer that trusts you and, you know, you've been working together for, uh, for, for at least uh, uh, long enough to know each other, how you, how you relate. Um, but um, the, the, the Mercedes car is very strong and I'm very happy to have had this shift or to have shifted to, to, to Venturi after Audi as I could not, well, Audi had to leave. <clears throat> the decision of Audi leaving Formula E, I could not uh, continue with them, mm. or I chose not to continue with them in DTM or some other stuff that they were doing. And uh, yeah, and uh, now everything starts again in, in with the Gen 3 car that starts next season with uh, completely different power, different uh, car, different aerodynamics, different tires, different everything. So everybody starts from scratch. What are your opinions on that Gen 3 car? Oh, sorry, Ed. I no, sorry. No, I was cutting across you, but I just wanted to ask Luke about the, the Gen 3 car because I saw that piece you put on, I think on LinkedIn, um, when, yeah. when that car came out, suggesting some other ideas. I always get the feeling, because you're always about pushing the boundaries, you have got kind of an engineering mindset. So you explained a bit in there what you'd have done with a with not a blank sheet of paper, but just to slightly change it within what was there. But how far would you like Formula E to go with the car and how, how far would you have pushed it if you were ground up saying right that's that's the next generation Formula E car so the way the way I approach racing in general or life in general you look at when you when you're building a project or a car or a series you look at how if you had to design this from scratch like imagine that you come to a new uh, 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 an alien arrive on earth and had to design a race car 
that is electric. Um, you would not take the fuel tank out and put a 300 kilo battery in the place of fuel tank and then take the gearbox out and put an electric motor there. That does not make any sense for an electric racing car. Hmm. You do like more or less like the cars, the electric cars are today. You put the battery on the floor, you put motors in the front and in the rear axle. You started from where the advantages of having an electric powertrain uh, can give to you. And you design the car from the ground up. So I understand in the first year, because nobody has ever produced 30 or 40 uh, electric racing cars, that you need the safety, you need the, you know, you need a little bit of uh, some standard model to build the cars on, you know, on it uh, to make sure that the first season exists. <clears throat> but since the first season, even for Gen 2, I was pushing for four-wheel drive. I was pushing for a battery on the floor. I was pushing for, um, let's say, uh, a way that you can have, you could modulate better the power. So in, uh, in, in tracks like Mexico, you could go much faster. And then in tracks and circuits like, for example, Paris or Hong Kong uh, or London Battersea Park, you could reduce the power so you could adapt the car to the track and not necessarily build every track to the car. So I was, um, uh, since the beginning, pushing to that direction. So um, when I saw the Gen 3 car, I'm very amazed by the specs of it. The car is lighter, more powerful, but I will definitely go for four-wheel drive and I would definitely go for battery on the floor and some of the other things that uh, it, it makes sense. And um, the, the big question is, uh, how, how would you be able to make a car which is faster than Formula One with electric powertrain today for a single lap? And I think we are very, we are very close to the price point. I think okay. with the same budget, the same budget as the current for, for a single lap, not for the whole race distance would not be possible. Mm -hmm. but, th but then would that be the target of Formula E or it wouldn't? And then you go again to the entertainment cost um, parity, trying to balance these three elements in, in the best way possible. So it, it really depends how, how we want to achieve it. But definitely, I, I think there is a better way of doing the base engineering of Formula E to achieve better performance uh, over what we we currently have. Would there be any more gimmicks that you'd add uh, that you'd add into the to the sport? Uh, obviously, we've got the. Um... I, I would. I would. So, so how the world looks now? So, the world is shifting from hardware to software. Yeah. In every form, like look at the podcast we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I will start reducing the cost of hardware and adding software back into racing. So what I would do is, for example, create a standard suspension for everyone that you could tune the suspension by software. So for example, you could do anti-roll bars corner by corner. You could do like the intelligent suspensions on the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, they used to be, and they were banned because they were dangerous back then, but you could come up with better rules. So you have standard software controlled suspensions. I would move in Formula E to movable aerodynamic devices. So when you switch, a, it's a crazy idea, but uh, uh, the, <laughs> the, so when you switch an electric car on, uh, 
you don't see that the car is alive, like when you switch a combustion engine on. Mm. So, so my idea was to have incredible move, movable aerodynamic devices that when you switch the car on, the car looks like an animal. The car, look, the car would move to make sure that everything is on, like the planes does. Yeah. Like the plane, they, they, they change. So uh, movable aerodynamic devices to make the car more efficient on the straights with better downforce on the corners. You could program it. So basically moving from uh, uh, spending money on hardware, spending money on dampers, spending money on mechanical differentials to basically a, a software driven car with movable aerodynamics, battery on the floor, four by four, uh, no brakes. Or, uh, it will make, the, will make it cheaper to do like this on the long term and will make the car more efficient. Well, let's talk about your season now, because uh, as I said, we, we could probably talk to you about about that for uh, for a long time. Because you sounds like you've got a lot of ideas. But let's talk about your season now. How how is it going in your in your own kind of assessment of yourself uh, this this season? And what are your expectations uh, as the season progresses this year? So uh, my season has gone very well in race pace. So in the races, we are among the fastest, uh, pretty much every race. Um, if I look at the stats, I'm third or fourth fastest overall uh, in the races. I'm struggling with qualifying. One of the reasons is just as I described this lack of opportunity to try different stuff with the car and being able to come uh, and not being able to adapt very quickly mm-hmm. from the Audi car to the Mercedes car straight away, especially on full power mode. Um, and I had a few races that I had bad luck. For example, Berlin, I had a carbon part, a carbon piece of somebody else's car pierced my tire. So I had a puncture in race one uh, in Berlin. In uh, Rome, race one, I was running uh, easy on the top six points. And at the start, I got run over by Mortara crashing to Roland that crashed to me. Nothing I could do about. So I had a, a, a very fair share of let's say uh, bad luck mm. in this in this first part of the championship so my target now is of course to try to reduce the the gap to the leader formula in formula you e, can change it can change very quickly from uh one weekend that you have two good results you can catch up quite well so yeah uh i need to get better i need to improve a bit on the quality side and i need to um, adapt uh, a little bit better our procedures and our uh, methodology in the races, but that 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 that's pretty much it. I'm pretty satisfied with everything else, with the team, with the pace, with the approach. Good. Uh, Emma or, or Coops, question for uh, Lucas? Uh, yeah, but uh, obviously about Formula E. Recently, we've just seen that McLaren are coming in to take over uh, the Mercedes team as it leaves. From a driver's point of view. How do you how did you see that? How do you see that with with McLaren and the such a recognizable brand coming in to Formula E? Well, I'll just send a message to Zach uh, uh, <laughs> here asking for a seat. Uh, uh, no, it's it's very good to have two brands. So um Venturi are becoming Maserati racing uh um, oh, yeah, next season. Right. So Maserati is coming back and McLaren as well. So it's it's great to have the, the these two brands back into uh um, well, coming into Formula E as we lost a lot of the German manufacturers um, for reasons which are 
nobody really can explain, but we lost the German manufacturers and um, hopefully we we can get more teams to, to come back to, to Formula 2. Uh, I've got sort of like a general question. Um, out of all the series that you've done, um, what's your favourite track? Uh, Spa and Macau. Is there any reason why? Uh, I think both of them, they are over seven kilometers, uh, seven kilometers. <clears throat> so the drivers tend to like long tracks because basically you have a different array of corners and it's it's harder to be precise in every of these corners than to do many laps in the same small track. Macau and Spa, they are old fashioned, which means that uh, there are imperfections uh, to the track that make them even harder to drive. Uh, and what is nice about those tracks is that a spa a bit less than Macau spa is, 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 is quite good, but it, it feels that every time you're on the track, you still have somewhere to improve, that you never are, you're never able to do the perfect lap. You know, you always can find a little bit of here and there. And, and, and this creates, a, a, I think, a, a very interesting uh, technical challenge for the driver to, to, to be on those tracks. So for me, that definitely these two, these two tracks are my favorites. Do you miss racing on normal tracks rather than street tracks? Yeah, I do. Um, because, um, well, I, I grew up racing those tracks in Formula 3, Formula 2, Formula 1, Endurance. So I've done decades uh, racing those tracks. So uh, it's, it's, it, it's not, it, it is probably harder to drive in tracks like the Formula E tracks because it's basically Monaco after Monaco after Monaco after Monaco. It's, 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 it's really hard mentally to be not able to do any mistakes. Um, imagine that if Barcelona, there were walls, I guess um, a lot of the drivers would have been completely outside of the race uh, without, uh, you know, being the chance to recover. Imagine uh, uh, Abu Dhabi with the same walls all over the track. So, it is much harder to drive around walls all the time. Uh, but uh, you miss driving on those uh, fast-flowing tracks like Silverstone, Spa, Monza, and so on. I suppose that's what's good about Formula E, though, is that you still can overtake on these street tracks because that's what your cars are built for. Yes. So the way the race and the, the technical development and the sporting format is organized is that we can overtake in tracks like Monaco. Uh, and Gen 3, actually, they made a good step. This is actually, they've done pretty well. They made the car smaller mm. instead of bigger. Uh, they say that the airplanes and race cars, they are like people. They get fatter and bigger with age. <laughs> uh, so it's very hard to, to see the, the, the weight reducing in a, in a motorsport series, uh, endurance racing, uh, Formula One, you see the weight going up, you see the cars getting bigger like us. Mm. Uh, and um, I think they did a good step with the Formula E to, to bring Gen 3 um, smaller, lighter, so more nimble, you could race in smaller tracks, you could race in the middle of the cities. I think that was spot on uh, the, the decision from 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 me. Coops, have you got anything before we, we kind of move? I want to ask Luca about, uh, Lucas about uh, Formula One first uh, before we finish. So I'll, if you've got anything about Formula E that you want to ask before we move on. Well, actually, it's about the WEC. Uh, I know you've raced in the Endurance Championship in the past, but... I've noticed, I don't know much about it, but I've noticed in the recent 
just recently you've got Peugeot bringing in a new car. Lamborghini have said they're going to put an entry in a couple of years. I think Ferrari have said something about it. Yeah, Ferrari's so, building a car. Uh, so Porsche, what, Porsche is building a car. Cadillac. So, there are many yeah. brands. So, as a driver who's been in it, how how exciting is that to see the 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 it seems to be kind of back in vogue now. This the WEC and how you know very little, and I explain you why. Um, um, the rules. What I don't like about racing is balance of performance. So what we have in DTM, what we have in many of the other series is that you can perform better than the other, but you get a ballast or you get a you get a penalty by performing better. Mm. And the LMDH and the LMH uh, series, they will have to have balance of performance with, between the cars. And that's why it's so attractive to these manufacturers because they don't need to spend so much money to be able to perform because they get balanced out. That's why GT3 is so successful because you'll be, you're able to race with any car. <clears throat> that has a very good side because you need that for racing. You need the, the cost effectiveness of a, of a championship needs to be there to have a lot of manufacturers and cars. Even the cost effective the cost effectiveness of F1 in the 2010s and late, the mid 2010s, 2015, 16, it started to get so expensive and not so many views. The series was actually not in a good place, 15, 16, 17. And then now it kind of, after the Netflix effect and so on, it went back mm. up quite a lot and they put a cost cap. So every team is spending less. But in the 2000s, Toyota was spending nearly a billion dollars in the, in the F1. Yeah. That's not sustainable. So the, that means that the cost effectiveness, it's very low. You're spending a lot of money for no result. And that's why the manufacturers, they pull out. Mm -hmm. And that's what we don't want. So the LMDH, it's exactly on this direction. You have very low cost because of all of this balance of performance. And uh, that's why everybody's trying to build cars there. And you have good return because the cars look similar to what your cars are going to look like. Uh, but they don't compare in technology at all to what we raced in the golden era recently against Toyota, Porsche, and Audi with LMP1 hybrids. So the technology of the LMDH and the LMH is very, very far behind what we had in the 2014, 15, 16 with, um, with the LMP1 hybrid. Um, so that's why it does not excite me a lot uh, but I think for overall motorsport, they've done a very good job of bringing all these manufacturers to uh, endurance racing. What's your predictions, uh, Lucas, for, for the Formula One season? Do you think it will be a Max Verstappen uh, championship or do you think Ferrari uh, might actually do it this year after uh, such a, a hiatus for a championship? Um, again, um, I, I hope Ferrari wins for a change. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, the maximum I can, I can cheer for. Uh, and in any case, what I really like is for the, to be a, a fight between any of the drivers. I don't really mind which one. Uh, just that we have an exciting season in F1. So the, the, the sport can, you know, uh, people can talk about uh, racing. People can follow it. More people can enjoy and, and have fun with the, with the sport that we all like. Uh, Ed, have you, have you got anything to add uh, about about the, the the championship so far? Are you, are you loving it this year with the with the new cars? It's just good that 
the teams are having to get to grips with a very different style and type of car. And they're still learning. It's a steep learning curve. So we are seeing performance swings and they're still not completely on top of it, which is what makes it so, so interesting. And seeing the drivers adapting to it. Mm. It's, it's always just good to see diff, slightly different challenges going on. But yeah, the hope is it'll go down to the wire uh, and hopefully we'll get a, uh, get a dramatic season finale. Maybe not quite as controversial as last year's, but <laughs> that, that's what you want to see. You want to see drivers being able to battle and go out go out and have some good races. And this Verstappen Leclerc one, if it can go all the way like this, could be could be a classic. But yeah, we'll, we'll, it's anybody's guess where it will end up. Ferrari's upgrades work pretty well at the weekend, but Red Bull are making good steps at the same time so yeah there's no there's no way to call it as there's it's there's no kind of past data you can rely on to predict where this is going to go at this stage oh actually what we did want to what you you, you've started your own and you founded your own uh e-series itself um lucas uh and I, I just want you to tell us uh, what what is that new series that you're that you're talking about you, you did mention it very slightly uh it's a different form of uh, of uh, sustainable racing um, that's that's brand new this year that you've you've been a co-founder of. Uh, yeah, so the a motorsport is not a participative sport. Motorsport uh, is very expensive. It's not democratic at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, motorsport uh, it's very hard to start. You need to come from a wealthy background. So, and even if you have some wealth background. Uh, there is a lot of politics. There is a lot of money involved. Uh, you, you're not not necessarily if you're fully talented, you're going to be able to be a professional driver in general. So it's extremely unfair sport. Uh, I would say for the talented young kids. Right. So when we looked at uh, creating a new sport, we looked at what would be the what kids they love doing nowadays. Uh, how we can create a sport which is or how we can create a motorsport which is very sustainable and very democratic and you can have uh, women competing against men and we have people coming from zero money background and become a professional uh, a rider or driver in this case. And so we decided to, to use uh, micromobility, uh, which is a, a, a form of transport that hundreds of millions of people, they, they do it every day. Yeah. And there is not a like a like F1 used to be for cars. There is no such sport doing for micro mobility the same um, the same reasoning, the same uh, the same development that F1 has done for road cars in terms of safety, in terms of inspiration, in terms of technology. So we started this e scooter championship. Uh, we're giving um, high value prize money. We are bringing people from any background, and we would like to transform. Uh, into a, a professional participative sport. So people can actually start, they can do stuff in their own, uh, um, uh, let's say, uh, neighborhood and country, and then become a professional rider and make money, have a living, have fun, uh, in a, and help to develop a, a better way of sustainable transportation. Uh, and, that, and that's what we did with the, with the SC. We had the first race in London uh, uh, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the next one is next week in uh, Sion, Switzerland, and we are doing uh, seven events this season. Wow! And I did look at a couple of clips on YouTube, and and they 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 do some speed actually on those uh, on those scooters, and they certainly get their elbows out. Uh, it looks it looks looks quite fun. <laughs> the scooter was developed by Williams F1. 
they can lean uh, the same as a as a MotoGP, uh, more or less a MotoGP bike, <laughs> uh, up, to, up to 50 degrees. Wow. They reach speeds over uh, 80 miles per hour or 120 kph. Um, and yeah, it's 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 extremely difficult and physical. I I, I tried. I'm, I'm not good at all uh, <laughs> on uh, on that. And uh, it's um, we had people from very different sports. We have like Olympic medalists of snowboarding. We had uh, um, a, a girl which was a model, but she used to ride scooter as a hobby. So th- there were like this moto moto two um, girl that was amazing. I mean. People from different backgrounds competing in a completely new sport. And it's not to replace anything. It's just to create new opportunities for people that would like to have fun. Brilliant. And it's an, a sustainable one as well, where, because obviously it's good for the environment. It's the most sustainable one, especially because of the logistics. We can talk about the engines and hybrid systems, but the, the amount of CO2 created by transporting 20 cars around the world, mm. 23 weekends, according to Ed. Uh, it's not sustainable at all. You can add 10% of ethanol. You can uh, add uh, hybrid systems. It doesn't really change anything. It's extremely unsustainable uh, in in many different ways. Uh, and uh, actually, Vettel was on the, on the British TV talking about it. And so it, it's not sustainable at all. So we, we want to, to create something which is already aligned with the future. So how, how can we create something which the transportation is very cheap, the track build up, uh, it's very cheap. People can but can use that technology to go from point A to point B in cities. And uh, micromobility is one of the answers. Fantastic. Well, definitely everyone should check it out. Um, well, I'm going to end the podcast there. Uh, thank you very much for coming to join us, uh, Lucas and Ed. Um, do you want to plug anything else while you're here? Do you want to plug your socials? Do you want to plug anything that, you, that you're taking part in or that, or that you'd like our fans to go and follow you uh, in, uh, Lucas? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, if, uh, I'm, I'm very active on my social media. So if anybody has any questions or uh, anybody wants to interact, I'm on Instagram, uh, uh, Twitter mainly, and uh, LinkedIn uh, as well. So just um, send a message and uh, with a question, I'll try to answer to anyone. Fantastic. And Ed, would you like to plug your uh, the race podcast and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Always up for a, uh, for plugging things. Yeah, the Race F1 podcast, um, obviously well worth listening to. Uh, you will have to listen to me, unfortunately, which isn't ideal, but always have some uh, good guests on it. My colleagues, Mark Hughes, Scott Mitchell, Gary Anderson turns up on it as well. We have to get Lucas on at some stage in the uh, in the future. I, uh, I guess also, uh, yeah, definitely. We'll get, I think you've been on our Formula E podcast in the past, but uh, not not the F1 one. Um, yeah, and obviously the, the, race, uh, the race.com website where there's uh, plenty to read there. Brilliant. And we are obviously Everything F1. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, we're also on TikTok now, which Emma's providing some great content on there, uh, little bite-sized videos uh, that you should all go and check out. Uh, we've got our website, www.everythingf1.com. And of course, our podcast itself that you're listening to ver- at this very moment. Uh, we'd love it if you'd hit the bell uh, and subscribe to all of our podcasts to get them in your earlobes as soon as they drop every single week. So that's all from me. That's all from Coops. Thanks very much for coming today. Thank you. Thank you very much to Emma for coming to chat to us today. Thank you. Thank you very much to our two absolutely brilliant guests, uh, Ed. Thanks for coming, Ed. Yeah, pleasure. Always happy to turn up. Good, good. And again, Lucas Bigorassi, thank you very much for, for coming to speak to thank us today. Thank you very much. We are the Everything Everyone podcast. We'll see you next week uh, where we review the Monaco Grand Prix. Bye-bye.